1 Peter, what we see is all of these things about defending the faith are addressed to the whole church. And it's about the whole church being holy. It is about the whole church having the capacity to defend the faith. It's not about a superstar. And think about this. If anybody could be a superstar, I mean, Simon Peter, he saw it. <laughs> he saw it firsthand. And yet, what does he do? He doesn't say, hey, I need to come in to tell you how to defend the faith. He's saying, every one of you be holy and be ready to defend the faith. We all are going to have to be part of this. Welcome to the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Garrick Bailey. In each episode of this serious but lighthearted podcast, Timothy Paul Jones and I explore evidences for the truth of Christianity. And along the way, we even talk about movies, music, and culture. If you're interested in supporting this podcast and receiving shirts, mugs, and more, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Apologetics Podcast, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. Welcome back to this two-part series that's focused on where to start in understanding apologetics. In the first part, Garrick and I gave you three foundations for apologetics. And if you remember, those three foundations were, it's not an apology, it's not apologizing for something, rather it's a defense that includes evidence. Number one, apologetics is a defense that includes evidence. And the second thing was that it calls for more than holiness, but it never requires less than holiness. That is to say, apologetics is combined and entwined with holiness. A holy life is part of what apologetics is. And then we looked thirdly, at that it's not just holiness, but it's also hope. That is to say, apologetics has to do with a hope that is centered in the resurrection of Jesus. So there's three key words to remember those first three points we made about apologetics, defense, holiness, and hope. And that's where we ended the last episode was with the hope of the resurrection of Jesus. And here's what we want to do in this particular episode. We want to look at four more foundational truths for apologetics. So we've looked at defense, holiness, and the hope of the resurrection. Now we want to look at four more kind of key ideas in apologetics. And the focus of these four truths is simple. We want you to be able to do great apologetics without being a jerk. So again, the point is that hope, this is all through scripture. This is not something that we're making up, not just a soapbox of ours, right? We've already seen it with Peter, that the hope of Christianity is centered in resurrection, not in particular views of creation, a particular method of apologetics. The, all methods of apologetics, if you choose to land on one, ought to be centered in the resurrection. Also, point number four, halfway there, living on a prayer, the life of a biblical apologist, if we've said things like this, the life of a biblical apologist is marked by meekness. The life of an apologist is marked by meekness. Again, let's go to our boy Peter, 1 Peter 3.16, 
make a defense with meekness and fear or gentleness, humility. It's be an apologist, but be an apologist who lives up to the Beatitudes. That's <laughs> essentially what Peter's saying here. Yeah. And that's one of the things that apologetics often isn't. Oh, meek. goodness. Yeah. <laughs> we could make a list we aren't going to, but we could make a list of apologists that are not meek in any way. But I don't want to do that because I want to focus on the positive and the beautiful and the good and just dig into this in 1 Peter 3.16 where meekness is horizontal. That's how we engage with other people. Fear, that second part in Peter, is vertical. That's how we view God. So we should be doing our apologetics with meekness and fear. Meekness in the way we engage with others and fear in the way we look to God. That's not often the attitude people have in apologetics of really engaging the people around us, being humble, being meek, being kind, being gentle. If your apologetics are not kind and meek and gentle, you're not doing biblical apologetics. Simple as that. You are not doing biblical apologetics. Biblical apologetics is meek in the way you relate to others, and it is in a fear of God, a reverence toward God in the way you relate toward God. And that just practically means arrogance and apologetics ought to be a contradiction. That ought to be an absolute contradiction if somebody is arrogant and an apologist. In our work here in the Institute at TVC, we say the same thing a lot when we're talking about doing theology, right? A theological life, the doing of theology has no room for pride and arrogance because if those things are there, then it's not proper theology. It's very Augustinian, isn't it, Timothy? It's the proper reading of scripture is the reading that leads you to love of God and love of others. And then Peter says, well, that's how our apologetics ought to look like. And so if you put the two together, Peter and Augustine, probably be good friends. If you're properly reading scripture, then it leads to meekness and fear, which will inform, properly inform, your defense of the Christian faith. So let's look at number five. Biblical apologetics is more interested in winning people than in winning arguments. Like somebody says, oh my goodness, I thought apologetics was all about winning arguments. No, no that's it's Twitter. not about winning arguments. No, that's Twitter, friends. <laughs> exactly. Twitter is about winning <laughs> arguments. Apologetics and Christian theology are all about people. <laughs> and that's the thing. We get to this point sometimes. All of us have been there if you're witnessing to somebody and you decide, I'm going to win this argument. And you lose sight of the love of the person. Mm. And you just decide, I'm going to win the argument. Just as a side note, in your marriage, this is a good idea too, to avoid this. There's times when you're talking and you get to this point of, 
I'm going to win this argument no matter what. When that happens, you already lost. You already yeah. lost at yeah, that you point. <laughs> you just lost. It's the same way in apologetics, though, for a different reason, different purpose, different relationship. It's the same thing at the, at the level of when you decide I'm going to win the argument at the cost of the person, then you already lost the argument. It doesn't matter if you won or not. You've already lost at that point. And the reason for this is it goes back to the point before, right? Because focusing on winning an argument means it's impossible to focus on winning an argument and therefore forgetting about the person whom you're arguing with. Impossible to do that if meekness and fear mark the defense of the faith that you're making, right? It's all connected. It's all connected. So the sixth one of these, let's go to number six. Number six is that biblical apologetics also adjusts its approach to meet each challenge. Biblical apologetics, number six, adjusts its approach to meet each challenge. In scripture, there is not one single method of apologetics. If somebody tells you there is one single method of apologetics that you should always follow in every circumstance, and this is what you do, and I don't care what that method is, they are doing something that is not the biblical way of apologetics. Because in scripture, the apologetic is presented differently based on the audience. You can compare Acts 2 with Acts 17. Acts 2, Simon Peter is talking to people who are Jewish, who are faithful Jewish people from all around the world, and he appeals to the scriptures. He appeals to the miracle that has just happened among them. That's what he appeals to, and then he appeals to his own testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. Paul in Acts 17 is dealing with a group of philosophers who have no awareness of or at least no appreciation for the Jewish scriptures, and Paul never once cites any scripture of any kind in Acts chapter 17. He does not begin with scripture. Now, somebody say, oh, well, he begins with biblical truth, but he doesn't ever cite scripture or even paraphrase scripture. What he appeals to are the poems of their own world. Now, he turns those inside out, shows the false perceptions that are embedded in them, but he draws from those and he goes from those to the resurrection of Jesus. He goes from what the people in his audience already know and what is testified to in their own artistic endeavors. And then he goes to the resurrection of Jesus and to the final judgment at that point. So if you look at these two, you see radically different methods based on different audiences. And in each instance, what's happened is the apologist, in one case, Peter, and in the other case, Paul, finds common ground and builds on it. Paul still believes the Bible when he is arguing in Acts 17 with these philosophers. He still believes the Bible. The reason he leaves out the Bible is not because he doesn't believe the Bible. It's because the Bible isn't something that they accept as an authority. Therefore, he has to go somewhere else to find some degree of common ground with them. All right, let me hit the pause button and play devil's advocate for possibly things that are going through someone's mind as they're listening. But wait a minute, Timothy. We just talked about in our point about the resurrection being the center of all things, how you can't give up that ground, right? That you can't ignore or certainly reject or you can't concede the ground of the impossibility of supernatural and the resurrection. You said that you can't do that. But then you just talk about Paul not using scripture because it's not recognized as authority. Are you contradicting yourself? Yeah, take that, Timothy. Yeah, you could do that. You could say that. And here's what I would say back. And I think it's a good point to raise, though, in that there are multiple pathways to get to 
the resurrection and we work outward from the resurrection to the truthfulness of God's word. And there's different ways you can get to the resurrection. Paul chooses to do this because of his context by drawing from the truths that they know through their poets, the truths that they know in their own souls from creation itself, and he gets to the resurrection that way. On the other hand, Simon Peter, what does he do? He goes from Holy Scripture, from the Old Testament to that, and from his own personal testimony. They both get the same place to the central fact and act of the Christian faith, but they do so in different ways. And and today, let's think of it this way. We could get to the resurrection using several different methods and models. We could work from the church to the resurrection from the existence of the church is inexplicable apart from some supernatural event that formed the church and a supernatural power living, continuing in the church for it to be what it is today. That would be an ecclesial apologetic for the resurrection. They work from the church to the resurrection. You could also use some sort of a transcendental or presuppositional argument in which the things that happened are best explained and in fact only fully explained by means of a resurrection, that the best explanation of this, you could go through an evidential route and say, okay, could we agree on this one fact about this and then build from there? There's a lot of things you could do, but you can get to the resurrection of Jesus depending on the person you're talking to from a variety of different places. Because no matter how far somebody is from God's grace, there are what we call in the Reformed tradition, there are common notions of which they are aware. I couldn't possibly remember what episode this would have been from. I'm pretty sure it would be way back in in season one. But when talking about what is apologetics and, and whatnot, at one point, I remember pointing out Bob Inc.'s argument that apologetics and theology aren't separate, right? That apologetics is something that comes up under theology, just like ethics, right? That these aren't separate things and that apologetics and ethics flow from theology. And because I agree with him there, John Frame, a theologian, his definition of theology is simply the application of scripture to our everyday life. And that application changes, it looks different throughout the centuries, throughout the ages, right? So it makes sense that the defense of the faith, which is theological because it is biblical, would adjust to meet these challenges. And the interesting thing is, in fact, one of the reasons why Bavink has become so popular recently largely is because we can finally read him in English. But now that we can read him in English, people are reading this theologian who died a hundred years ago and the things that he was writing at that time, people are reading and their minds are blown saying, this is so relevant still for today, but you still see there are differences. There are conversations you can tell that are going on that are different. And he's pointing to different people and we'll bring up some things that we wouldn't today. And yet in the big picture, it's all, there's nothing new under the sun. We've said that several times <laughs> throughout this podcast. But I love that idea from frame that it's applied. It's the scriptures applied because we think about apologetics and I think rightly think of apologetics as part of theology, as a discipline that runs alongside theology, we might say. Then what we see at that point is that depending on our context, our apologetic is going to look different. Now, the truth we're proclaiming, that doesn't change. The truth of our theology doesn't change, but the application of it is going to change. And so 
what it comes down to is Sammy Hagar once said, there's only one way to rock. And he was right. Sammy Hagar is right about <laughs> almost everything, including who was the greatest singer in Van Halen. But there may be only one way to rock, but there are many ways to do apologetics. There's not any one way to do apologetics. Because of that, anytime you get wrapped up in a method, what ends up happening ultimately is it distracts you from the gospel. It really does. It distracts you from the gospel. And that, as you've heard over and over, what we've tried to emphasize is it's got to go toward the gospel. It's got to be something shaped by the gospel. Don't get locked into a method. Don't get locked into winning an argument. Instead, get locked into the gospel and then think of how in different contexts that different people may be able to hear and to understand the gospel. And ultimately, remember, you can't convince them in such a way that they'll come to faith. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But the Holy Spirit can use you as a means to bring them to faith. That's what the Holy Spirit can and does do. But don't get locked into a method or you'll stray from an emphasis on the gospel, get locked into the gospel, and then be sensitive to your context in terms of what method you use. And because of all these things, because we believe this, these previous points, apologetics flows from theology, that it needs to adjust its approach, that it's got to be centered on and point to the gospel because, because it's centered on the resurrection. Because all of these things we believe are true, that brings us to our final point, that Biblical apologetics is a work of the whole church. Again, you can see it right there in 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. This is a work of the entire church. It is for all of us. And I think we've been chastened recently, and I don't delight in the fact that we have been, but we have been chastened recently by the fall of very high-profile people with this reliance on superstars for apologetics. And that's the thing. I mean, you and I both saw it in youth ministry at different times that apologetics, what that meant was to get some superstar evangelist or superstar apologist to come in and present about apologetics. And that was your big apologetics conference that you did. And that's how you did apologetics. And so it was really reliant on a one-man superstar show that you'd bring to your church, in essence. It was the equivalent of the concerts and the things like that. It was just one more of those events you would do was what apologetics was. And that was well-intended, but it was, it was just headed in the wrong direction. And what we've seen is we don't want to rely for our apologetics on superstars. We need to have many, many people in our churches equipped to do what they can do in apologetics. And it's time to take apologetics back to the local church. And so my encouragement is when you start thinking of apologetics, don't think of the superstar. Don't think of how do we get this instead of that Try to find out what the questions of your people are and equip them to answer the questions. That's what we need. We do not need a million-dollar apologist. We need a million one-dollar apologists, my friend Jay Warner Wallace often says. And I think that's so true. We don't need a million-dollar apologist. We need a million one-dollar apologists. And that's what we each can be. And that means you can decide on 
one thing that you can really know the answer to and be able to understand. And if you know that one thing and you have, are surrounded in your church by other people who have studied one or two things and they can understand that together you can love one another and defend the gospel together. And that is the beauty of it. And in First Peter, what we see is all of these things about defending the faith are addressed to the whole church. And it's about the whole church being holy. It is about the whole church having the capacity to defend the faith. It's not about a superstar. And think about this. If anybody could be a superstar, I mean, Simon Peter, he <laughs> saw it. He saw it firsthand. And yet, what does he do? He doesn't say, hey, I need to come in to tell you how to defend the faith. He's saying, every one of you be holy and be ready to defend the faith. We all are going to have to be part of this. That's right. Essentially, Peter, in order to make apologetics great again, which is one of his mottos, it's centered on the resurrection and it's rooted in the church. Those are kind of in my last few years of really doing this podcast, but largely kind of just our conversations and relationship with you. Those have been my two biggest takeaways. Those have been the two very helpful anchor points for me, right? Centered on the resurrection, rooted in the church. If those two things are true of our sense of the faith, then that's a really good starting point. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're interested in supporting the Apologetics Podcast, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. To listen to more episodes or to learn more about the two of us, take a look at our website at theapologeticspodcast.com. Also, if you're interested in learning more about apologetics, ministry, and leadership in urban contexts, you might enjoy the Urban Ministry Podcast. Go to urban.sbts.edu to learn more about this podcast. My name is Timothy Paul Jones. My co-host is Garrick Bailey, and we are already looking forward to joining you next time on the next exciting episode of The Apologetics Podcast. Mm-hmm.